0: I showed them by the scriptures that there was an anointing within man to teach him, and that the Lord would teach his people himself. George Fox. This is session 25. We are reading the gospel according to Mark, chapter 14, verse 12. We left off with Judas agreeing to betray Jesus. I'll read a bit here. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. Okay, in verse 14, we have here the teacher asks, and if you recall the Aramaic, the Hebrew word for teacher is? Rabbi. That's correct. Of course, the Greek word we translate as, Disciple is the word that means student or pupil. That's the Greek word for student, pupil, or also translated as disciple. This English word disciple comes from the Latin word discipulus, which means student or pupil. I keep on emphasizing this because most Christians don't really see this over and over again in the New Testament that Jesus is a teacher, and these people following him, his followers, are students of his. If you recall, at the beginning of the Gospels, how did they become disciples? How did they become students? Jesus selected them. Yes, that is unusual. Mostly what happened at that time were people were interested in going and hearing and following various teachers or rabbis. The rabbi didn't go out and pick them. In this case, Jesus did. So this was somewhat unusual.
1: So then after his death, he selected all of us because he's in all of us, right?
0: Ah, are you talking about predestination? No, no, I'm just no, wondering. No. We're all, his, student, where all Je- his students. Jesus are? told his disciples to go out and make disciples. Yeah, make disciples of wow. all nations, students of all nations.
2: He also said, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you.
1: Okay. And then his light is in all of us, so... As a seed. But
0: so that's not choosing, okay. No. That's different? That's not choosing. Okay. I mean, you can ignore that light. You can try to crush it. You may not pay attention to it, but as a follower, you are to pay attention to Christ as light, as illuminator, as illumination.
2: Okay, thanks. But Henry? Yes? He also said, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you.
0: Right, yes. Yes. And wasn't he speaking to us? I hope so, (laughs) yes. What I thought was, Karen is thinking, because the Spirit of Christ is, or the Word of God is in everyone, that that somehow makes them automatically aware of that, that divine illumination. People may choose not to pay attention to it, as they so often do. They are so much more beguiled by the prince of this world. Yeah, yeah. The leader of this world. Actually,
1: what I meant was that if his spirit were in all of us, it meant that he had chosen all of us. I did sort of understand that we might not notice that.
3: This is David Fink. I had a comment on uh, verse 14. I have spread in front of me uh, four different translations, and I'd like to see what the differences are. A couple of them say rabbi, and a couple of them say teacher, but the good speed says master. And I don't know frequently rabbi is translated as that. I know that some people have problems thinking of Jesus as master. They're
0: Let me stop you immediately. In British forget. English, master is the right. word for teacher, so, right. I mean, right away, you know. We still have the word headmaster, and that's uh-huh. the head teacher and the principal. I don't know what you would call the head of a school in Canada, Dave, I mean, are they called headmasters or principals in Canada?
4: I suppose sometimes a principal.
0: Okay. Because I know in Australia, they're not called principals, they're called headmasters. So it depends on your translation. That's what it is. When we say Lord in English, we are translating the Greek word that means master in the sense Uh of master, like a slave master or the owner of a dog or the owner of a house. We are calling Lord, we are saying owner or master, yes master. That's the word Lord. Most people, I think, aren't aware of how powerful that word is that we are calling God the Father and we're calling Jesus Lord, saying he owns us. He is the Lord God, God the Father, is owner of the universe, of everything that he makes. He has the final say. And that title is also used of Jesus. He is our master if we are truly his servants or as the Greek says, his slaves. That's the kind of relationship that Paul constantly says when he introduces himself. In so many translations, he'll he'll see a servant of the Lord or the servant of Jesus. But the Greek says he's a slave. Paul is a servant to other Christians and to his congregations, but he's a slave to God, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of enlightenment. That's the kind of slave owner we're talking about here. The word in Greek is kurios, which is exactly what that means. That gets translated as Lord, but the basic meaning is owner, master. It also has another meaning, and that is a polite form of address. Even in modern Greek, it still means Mr. or Sir. So it has those two meanings.
3: Henry, the reason I raised the question is that I do want to own the word master in this better sense. And with the peculiarities of the American experience with slavery, there are many Quakers I know who avoid or reject that word in the same way that they may reject the historic uh, Quaker use of the word overseer.
0: I'm aware of that and I'm trying to explain it. You're a slave to love, you're a slave to compassion, you're a slave to justice. This is a different kind of slave than being a slave to some arrogant landowner. And that's a very different thing. It has to be explained. I mean, slavery wasn't easy in the Roman Empire. There were two or three major slave revolts. I should also say that this word "curios" is the title that was given to the emperor, to Caesar. He was kurios. He was owner of the empire. And with early Christians, if there was some doubt as to whether someone was a Christian or not, if they came before a magistrate, They could ask them to worship Caesar, worship the emperor, worship the state, the empire, by asking them to pour a libation of wine, maybe mixed with honey or something, wine onto the ground or onto some object, and at the same time say, Caesar is kurios, Caesar is Lord. A true Christian could not do that because he only accepted God the Father and Jesus worthy of that title. So that would prove that he's a Christian.
3: Just to finish my thought about the word master, it occurs in several of my favorite hymns, and I don't want to, oh, master, let me walk with, in the hymn, where across the crowded ways i oh, master, from the mountainside, make haste to heal these hearts of pain. So it's something I'm, I'm unwilling to abandon and maybe take it as the opportunity for giving some of the explanation that you are helping us with.
0: This isn't an an important point anyway to bring up because I'm aware of all these controversies among liberal friends, but it's really out of ignorance and what's really being talked about here in the Bible is this our first kind of relationship with God, the Father. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom from Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 and the word fear there The Greek word as well as the word in earlier English of 300-400 years ago with the King James Version didn't only mean fear, it meant the sort of awesome awe of God, holding God in total awe. Fear because of that awe, gobsmacking awe. You are just a mere human creature that may be lucky to live up to 80, 90, 100 years, whereas God is eternal, has created every single thing in this universe, and you need to be aware of that kind of relationship. We can go into, at the same time, God being love and looking at the Psalms even there.
3: Susan has her hand up.
0: Susan, it's okay to just keep on interrupting throughout. We we do that in this group, okay? Okay, I just
5: wondered about the fact that the word slave, both in present day context as well as in ancient times, you don't get to choose to be a slave. If you're a slave, it's involuntary.
0: Yes, this is a voluntary slave. I'm sorry? We're talking about being a voluntary slave of... But the slavehood is that it's not voluntary. But when you become a slave of God, if you understand that relationship. As I was just about to say earlier, Paul says he's a slave to God, to Christ, but he says he's a servant. It seems like
5: servant would be a better translation, even though a lot of us don't like to soften it up for liberal friends. If it yeah. is voluntary, then you're a servant. No, but, but,
0: you, but, but it could... Hold on, stop, stop, stop. Sorry. Let me explain something here. The problem is the English. In the King James Version, the word servant is used. Servant at that time had two meanings. It both meant slave and it meant servant. The word servant actually comes from the Latin word Servus, which means slave. Our problem is in English with the fact that the word servant has changed its meaning in the last 400 years. It has lost the original meaning of slave and has only kept that voluntary kind of servant meaning. If you only spoke Russian and we're looking at a Russian translation of the Bible, you'd see the word slave where the Greek says slave. And you see the word servant meaning servant in our normal sense where the greek says servant it's only in the english-speaking world because of the changes in english that we have this messy problem that otherwise you just be looking and seeing the words as they were correctly translated from greek into say russian and this was the correct translation back in the 1600s in the king james version Unfortunately, that word servant had multiple meanings then, and it's lost the meaning of slave. The word servant is related to the word serf, s-e-r-f, servile, servitude, military service, that's... The problem we have is just a linguistic problem. It's a diachronic, overtime kind of problem in English that's there, but it shouldn't be there. If we never had that change of meaning in English, we wouldn't be even having this discussion. Um, Henry,
4: I've thought about this too a lot, seeing that word, um, it is in my version of the Bible as well. Which one? Um, I have the New International Version.
0: Uh Uh-huh.
4: I've kind of thought about that a lot, and I, yeah, I guess it is more than just being a servant. There might be some choice in the matter at some point but maybe at a certain point god claims you so completely that you are no longer just a servant i've heard different people talk about kind of how this has happened to them like um different christians in their writings like maybe some like um Christians that were really into, like, you know, Christian meditation or different kinds of things and talking about this process of being claimed by God and it's hard because, yeah, there's... I guess there is some choice in the matter, but it's the way they talk about it is that is something pretty powerful. But yeah, the word slave and master, I could see why that would be hurtful to some people but there is something to that concept.
0: I do want to emphasize this problem is only because of our English translation. In a different culture, and I do know the Russian translation there, it's just, you know, even the older Russian, the more modern one, they just very clear and it's always been there and they've never had an issue with that. Also, I think with Americans, maybe Canadians too, with our rugged individualism, with our cult of the individual being everything, We don't quite like this kind of relationship. And yet, so often in the New Testament, it says that Christ must come first before relatives, friends, everything. You must put Christ first. And that's what this kind of emphasis is there, I think. What I'm saying I know sounds strange, but this is just a problem that we have. Oh, I should mention something. I have a translation of the Bible. I got a used copy. I've just started looking at it. It's an English translation of the Bible, but it's done by the Catholic Church in the Philippines. And it's very, very interesting to look at the footnotes there. They're just not kind of footnotes explanations that I've ever seen in any American or British commentaries on various biblical phrases and verses. It's just a different world there than it is here. I want to emphasize this because I don't want to fight this kind of, it's so strange to us to think of that word slave, you know, being slaves of Christ, being slaves of God. But you make that choice, actually. But being a servant is something that's not eight hour a day kind of servant. Or It's not 24 hours, seven days a week. If you really want to be a follower of Christ Jesus, it has to be all the time, you know, everywhere. And I think that's the emphasis there.
2: I'm thinking of the word submission, and that's another it. thing that we don't want, we don't like in our culture. If he is master to us, we submit, and that's what people don't want, too, if they're rejecting master and slave. That's what
0: we're talking about. They want to be in control. In the final analysis, God has complete control. You can't decide when you are going to die You have no say of when you were born, or who your parents are, or what kind of society you grow up in. In the writings of early friends, so often you see the expression, fear of the Lord, fear of God. You have to think of it in terms of awe rather than just fear. It did have that meaning. Most often this kind of total awareness of how small you are compared to the God who created everything, all of time and space.
1: Historically, people could sell themselves into slavery. Even in yeah,
0: non-servant or whatever, sure.
1: Yeah, but they could sell themselves into true slavery, so it could be a choice. I mean, they could be captured.
0: Yeah, but that's not being talked about here at all. But that would be an instance,
1: the distinction, Susan was just saying that it was never a choice. And I'm just saying that slavery historically could be a choice. And our choosing to be slaves of God can be to the extent yeah. that we have any choice.
0: In terms of the Roman Empire, when Julius Caesar conquered Gaul, he took back to Rome and sold more than 50,000 people as slaves. With the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the first Jewish war, I don't remember the number, but again, thousands of Jews ended up as slaves. Many were were killed, uh, actually crucified. But slavery didn't have the same connotation. It wasn't a racial thing at all at that time very intelligent people who could just end up as slaves, doctors and teachers and whatever. But you could also, in the Roman Empire, if you had relatives or somehow could find the money, you could buy yourself out of slavery. That wasn't something you think of in terms of American slavery.
1: So are people who deny God slaves of God? No. Okay.
0: What the focus, I think, is on becoming conscious It has to do with your ego, with yourself realizing you're just part of something much vaster than just the small family or society you you live in. You are really uh, a creature that's loved by God, but a creature that is so tiny in respect to the whole universe, like a grain of sand.
2: If we have a desire to please him, which those early friends did, that's different than those who don't have a desire to leave. He's a master in a sense of a deep love rather than a work boss or something. Yeah. You
0: know? I mean, it's being a slave to a God of love, being a slave to love, doing what love says you should do, being a slave to justice, doing what is upright, righteous, a slave of justice. This is a different kind of slavery. But we're also talking here about needing to become humble, to know our position in the universe. We are loved by God, even though we're so tiny, we're here for such a short period of time compared to the age of the universe and the vastness in space. This is a realization that is critical to becoming a a real serious Christian.
1: So it's strictly being a slave by choice, which is sort of the opposite of the sort of slavery that people are talking about when they don't like the use of the word.
0: It's a realization. You can't say when you will pass away. I mean, I'm not talking about suicide. There are things beyond our control, and the one in control is God, how he's created us, how he's created the universe, how he's created us individually with our own physical and mental and intellectual abilities, we all vary dramatically. Humility, I keep that word in mind, becoming humble. I can say the early friends were extremely humble people. That didn't mean they didn't try to get into your face and change you. They really realized the real need for a massive metanoia, a massive transformation of your consciousness and of your conscience. What was okay yesterday, today you realize is no longer okay. I have to act differently. I need to have this change of my whole framework of how I think about myself, the world, and God, and my relationships, um, among all those things.
2: How would an indentured servant be in this respect?
0: A slave is stronger than a bond servant or an indentured servant. If we weren't speaking English and we're speaking Russian or modern Greek, they still translate this in modern Greek as doulos, the word still means slave. We wouldn't be understanding this. It's because of all this false Christianity that we we have grown up with. I have a topic at some point, I don't know if I'll ever get to talk about it, but it has to do on the diachronic evils that occur over time as words change their meanings. We don't realize that those words meant something different in Christianity 300, 400 years ago than they do today. And we think they mean something different because of the changes, that the meanings they have today. The word deny, when Jesus says you must deny yourself or yourselves, the Greek word means to reject or renounce. The English word then, 300, 400 years ago, to say renounce or reject was the word deny. That was the correct translation, but today to use deny in that context is a wrong translation. It's not that we must reject, renounce ourself, our ego, pick up our cross daily, pick up our inward interior cross to all the worldly addictions, worldly cravings, all that animal nature in us that wants to be satisfied. We need to rise above that low-level animal nature with its cravings for this or that. We have to stop wanting to be gods like Adam and Eve wanted to be God. They weren't going to do it God's way. They were going to follow that serpent and eat that forbidden fruit.
3: This may or may not fit linguistically, but conceptually, the equivalent phrase for me in our Quaker language is to give over and Pennington's wonderful <laughs> advice to give over thine own willing, running, desiring to be anything or to know anything. Right. It's submission. I don't know if there's uh, anything scriptural in it, but apparently it had a very strong meaning for early friends, and it does for me too. It's a challenge to our ego. Right. It's not just renunciation of self, but it's putting ourselves in God's care. And then the promise comes if you read the rest of Pennington.
0: Yes. Give over, I think, if we wanted to translate that into modern English, I would say give up your own Mm. thinking. Even the word over at that time often meant above, not over in modern English. I feel so sad. I asked friends to go back and read many of these earlier Quaker writings. They're just so powerful in the spirit that they were written in, in the spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit. But I'm also so afraid of these kinds of misunderstandings that happen. I myself, I didn't grow up on the King James Version of the Bible. So for me, it became a new translation. But I actually started realizing I need to translate 17th century English into modern English to understand these better. And I've done that Uh, one more language to learn this language of the 17th century. It's a battle. It's a sad battle because people are so determined to hang on to their mistranslations if they didn't get it right. I'm aware of people, conservative friends who grew up in the King James Version, and they really understand what those meanings were, even though the meanings have changed today. But too often with other friends, I just am sorry to see this is one way the evil one messes up things for us. Just one more way.
4: Yeah, I found that too, Henry, is very difficult um, with some friends and and different people to talk about the scriptures or to look at some of the really beautiful verses because they see something very different than what might have been meant by those passages. And they can get people very upset very easily.
0: Yeah, If I were to translate some passages of the New Testament, which is, you know, was in Greek. I don't know Hebrew in the Old Testament, but and really translate them as they would have been heard by other Greek-speaking Jews and other Greeks and Romans. They'd be pretty shocked because it sounds so different from whatever translation they are familiar with today, whether it's the New International Version or something else. There's a lot of variation among these translations. Some are better, some are worse. They all have problems. I like to look at foreign translations, so I have the New Testament in French, Spanish, German, Polish, Russian, Lithuanian, uh, several other languages, and I kind of look at those and I say, how interesting. They just don't have the kinds of issues we have in our English-speaking world. They probably have other issues with their words, too, that got to change over time. Nobody today speaks King James English. No one speaks Shakespearean English today. No one speaks Chaucer's English. No one speaks Old English of Beowulf of a thousand years ago. You wouldn't understand it if you heard it. The further back you go, languages are always changing. Nancy maybe can remind me. Nancy, thee gave me something that thy mother gave thee once. It was a short little booklet of maybe 10 pages. And I just remember a verse there saying, What really matters is that what is sacred is the meaning behind the words, say the New Testament in the Bible, not the words themselves. That's what is sacred. That's what never changes. The words, of course, we constantly change and try to translate into a more modern sense, but it's those spiritual concepts that are eternal and never changing. I just understand language in in such a way, just from all my experience. I have a master's degree in Slavic languages and literatures. I have a master's degree in communication disorders. I've worked with patients with speech and language problems because I was a speech pathologist. Half my life working with people who had aphasia and dysarthria due to strokes. They had language problems speaking, reading, understanding, writing. I've taught English as a second language and English as a foreign language. I have such a different perspective than, say, your typical even Greek scholar of the New Testament. I don't agree with them sometimes, and that's because I can see some things differently from just my mental background. But also, I think also perhaps at times just God is leading me in that direction to really question some things. Even what I sometimes read in these Greek dictionaries, I don't agree with them. But that's me.
6: I was just going to say that I think the meaning is not dependent upon whether we're familiar with the exact meaning of the words. There were people that read the King James Version in the 17th century who did not understand the meaning of the words. And um, there's something about the principle among Quakers was that you had to read the scriptures in the spirit in which they were written in order to understand them. So it's sort of a a top-down, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and, and His righteousness, and all else will be given to you. It's that spirit that makes up the difference between what the exact dictionary meaning of the word is and how we understand and can find its meaning, which is the real issue, is to get to the meaning of the the words rather than to, you know, assign a certain dictionary definition to each word.
0: Yes, what he's talking about is denotation and connotation. Okay. The basic meaning of a word and the other meanings that are associated with that word. And that's with all words in all languages so that you just don't get a one-to-one correspondence ever. You might within an individual word, but most often it isn't. It's just the way the languages keep on evolving and changing over time. We need to look for the spiritual meaning. That's what Robert Barclay says and other fr- early friends that you've got to go behind the outward sounds and get to that spiritual concept in those words, and the meaning, the semantics, the, uh, these lexemes that have these uh, semiotic, we could talk about all fancy words here. You got to get beyond all that. But Isaac Pennington wrote something in a letter, and I've mentioned this in my talks before, in talking about words used in the Bible. He wrote a short letter. I'm going to just put it in modern English, more or less. The goal of all these words is to go beyond what words can utter. So learn from the Lord to make right use of Scripture, placing them in their proper place and esteeming them in their proper place, and that which is above them, esteem above them. I think he says it right there. It's not fighting over the words, which all sorts of theologians, Anglicans, Catholics, whatever, keep fighting over the meanings of things. But it's getting beyond that outward, getting to the inward. And that's what we as conservative friends who hopefully conserve these things are trying to do and should be aware that that's what we should try to do. This kind of thing we're talking about, this, this would be almost like one of my talks in the upcoming series, whenever I begin that, of uh, spiritual concepts. Because these sorts of things are important. I mean, this just has to do with a couple of words, slave and servant. But boy, you have to fight these things. And people are adamant about wanting to hang on to their incorrect Mm -hmm. understanding that they grew up with. Because they never heard anything but that. And they fight over these things. I had a fight once, well, an argument. I was on a train in England going from somewhere to somewhere for a long train trip. And I sent a woman, I think she had a Scottish accent, but I think she was a Baptist, but she was more of an evangelical kind of Christian. And she was just arguing with me over the various pacifist verses in the New Testament. I don't know how she couldn't understand me, but she was opposed to looking at the pacifist stance that Jesus was taking and what she knew.
1: Just as a very practical matter, couldn't the liberal friends, if they don't like the word master, just use the word kurios? And then they could say, it means what it meant then. And then they wouldn't have to have that problem.
0: No, that that (laughs) leads to problems too. I'm already aware of that. When you hear Christians saying the word Lord, most Christians are not aware of how powerful that word was and what it really meant in Greek in the first few centuries. It had a very specific sense. I mean, again, as I was saying, emperor was called kurios. Um, among Jews, the translation into Greek that we translate as Lord meant owner, but that, I mean, God was the only one that you, a Greek, I mean, a, a Jew would say was Lord too. I mean, that only God was kurios. I think they might've accepted various Roman emperors to be kurios too, I don't know about that. It was just a different understanding We're fighting about words and meanings here, but this is what Christianity is about in part. We're about finished. Let me just check one thing here. I'm sort of happy we discussed this. We didn't get very far, but it's an important thing. And I don't want to water down things from what early Christians understood and what early friends rediscovered too. Christ is everything. God is number one. You hear the expression for God and country. Those are not equivalent. They should not be equivalent. God is above country, any country. Countries come and go. They don't exist forever. So like I said, this kind of discussion tonight we'll probably we'll be doing sometime in the, in the upcoming series because it's it's an important thing. And it's not just with one word, but it's with many, many words.
5: Here's a question. I'm remembering that the evangelical friend Richard Foster had a little way of guiding people in spiritual formation that encouraged folks to spend some time relating to Jesus Christ in each of four different types of relationship. One was teacher and another was Lord. And we started in this passage talking about the teacher-student relationship. I don't think the slave word is even in the passage we were reading. I'm just thinking about Jesus as Lord, and my counterpart is that I'm Jesus' slave or servant, as the case may be. And I'm just wondering if in your own mind, Henry or anyone else, can you feel a difference in your relationship to
0: uh, I've of, I've as Lord
5: of, as opposed to teacher?
0: Let me just say, I find it hard to label myself as slave. I'm still working on that part, okay? I'm still more of a servant, maybe most of the time, but I'm still struggling becoming more fully Christian. And with regard to what he was saying about Lord, the two are really separate understandings, I think. I'm trying to see how you can combine them. I I don't know. Teachers were always very respected, you know, Jewish culture. And even today in many cultures, teachers are held much more highly than American teachers are held in our country. That's unfortunate. I don't know about Canada, I'm thinking of England where I've been, that teachers have a much higher position, and when I've been to the Soviet Union and Lithuania, (laughs) they're esteemed much more highly than here, so we've kind of lost that sort of understanding of, I want to learn from Christ, I want to learn from that utter truth of Christ in me as a teacher, there are so many other voices that want to disguise that voice and hide it from me and that want to be paid attention to, but I need to look at that and look for it and keep focused on it. It ain't easy. I make mistakes.
3: Friends, I'm looking at present company and I realize that Tom and myself and the Smiths were all together with Ken Jacobson in Barnesville, I guess it was last fall in which we spent the whole time looking at the concept and the experience of relating to Jesus as our teacher. And I know it's not the only relationship, but it helped me deepen my sense of this being very strong, if not primary. We can look at some of those other, um, the other three of the four that Foster talks about, and we may expand on it, was trying just now to remember what the secret code acronym was of ICTHUS, that Christians would use to identify yeah. each other.
0: Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Son of,
3: God, Son of Savior. God, Savior. Yeah, well, it doesn't say teacher, and it doesn't say <laughs> liberator, and it doesn't say a lot and of it other things. It doesn't say friend so, either.
5: <laughs>
3: right. <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah, even George
0: Fox, are, yeah. you know, George Fox had a whole right. list of the offices of Christ. Uh, the word offices changed its meaning. It basically means function various functions of the illumination of Christ as teacher, bishop, you can go on and on, and uh, you find them all repeated over and over again in his epistles and letters and other writings. Uh, so it's not just one or two or three or four, we're, we're talking about an illuminator, a light, an illuminator, illumination, illuminating all those dark spots, all those dark parts of us, if we allow that illumination to, to occur. It's about time to finish now, so I think we need to stop, but I hope this has been a useful discussion. I don't like watering down stuff, and yet since last month when I had this kind of epiphany in the New Foundation Fellowship reading, I'm feeling much less willing to water down things. Either you accept truth or you just can't go part of the way. It doesn't get you anywhere, and yet that's what so many people are happy about. You know, you talk here about these Sunday Christians who are Christians on Sunday, but the rest of the world, they're much more worldly. So, no, it it doesn't work that way. Okay, I see here, if someone will look at chat, Tom Roberts found the quote that I wanted to read. And the end of words is to bring humanity to the knowledge of things beyond what words can utter. So learn of the Lord to make a right use of the scriptures, which is by esteeming them in their right place and prizing that above them, which is above them. Very, very important quote. Okay, thank you all. Yes, that's okay, fine. Let me just, Nancy's going to tell me to shut off the recording right now. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote in our introduction was from George Fox's journal. It can be found on page 72 of the 1831 version printed by Gould and Hopper. We welcome feedback on
3: this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.